There is so much we don't know about the solar system, our galaxy, and the universe. What all else is out there? Are there aliens we should be afraid of or instead concerned for? All we can be sure of is that God has created it all and he won't violate his own nature. So, drawing from scientific observations and scripture, what are the biblical possibilities about alien life? Welcome anew to Fantastical Truth, Lorehaven.com's podcast in which we find the best of Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond, and we apply the wonders, the grandeur, the meaning of these stories to the real world that our creator, Jesus Christ, has called us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett. I publish Lorehaven.com. I'm also the co-author of a nonfiction book called The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, and I am so glad I was born on Earth because we know that this is the planet where Jesus has visited. And as far as we know, it's the only one, or is it? And this is episode 63, Did God Create Aliens and Would Jesus Need to Save Them? This is the one where we get more theological about the alien life question. We'll not be so much talking about conspiracies or UFO sightings or even that report that's coming up in June of 2021 about the unidentified aerial phenomenon or unidentified flying objects or whatever they're calling it this month. This is the one where we actually mine scripture first and the science second. And we ask, what if aliens did exist? God would have created them, but would Jesus have needed to save them? This is just the sort of thing we love to explore at Lorehaven. Any topic that relates to the intersection of biblical truth and fantastic imagination. We had several articles at lorehaven.com in the past week. You can subscribe free and get the weekday email updates for every single one of those in the future. On Monday, for example, we released the second part of my discerning biblical fiction series called Biblical Fiction Isn't Inspired by God but it can inspire our imaginations. We've had a lot of fascinating discussion about how we define the word inspire, reserving it for the inerrant word, the Bible itself, or can we also use that to talk about stuff that people do, providentially guided by God. We also had our last episode in Fantastical Truth, the Support Zombies episode last Tuesday. Uh, Zach here actually had his article in a new series about the redeeming the internet, uh, making the internet fun again. Uh, he explored his own memories of getting involved with the internet and some of the ancient days, the ancient memes before they even called them memes. That's been very popular. Uh, Elijah David uh, wrote a review of the Disney movie Raya and the Last Dragon. And then on Friday, we had a review of a Christian-made fantasy called The Land of the Purple Ring. Coming up this week, uh, you would have already seen some of these if you're listening to this podcast on the day it releases. Uh, we're going to have an article from uh, Marion Jacobs, uh, which is about the Snow White kissing controversy. Snow White didn't give consent to the prince, or did she? And then we will also have a part three of my discerning biblical fiction series. Yeah, so what are we doing when someone calls our article inspiring or a podcast or, or a Disney movie, if that's inspired? What does that mean? Well, I'm not going to nitpick them, uh, but in that <laughs> case, I just would want to be very careful about the theological definition of inspired. Inspired in this sense means God-breathed. Our podcast episode is not God-breathed, and especially if someone is a little fuzzy on the definitions, I think we should be careful about that word. Uh, that is definitely a future Fantastical Truth episode that we'll be putting together. Oh, one other thing, too. I uh, forgot to mention that I'm now locked in uh, for an event in Florida, uh, which is a Florida Home Educators Conference. Uh, Realmakers Bookstore will be there again. We're having all kinds of amazing guests. I even get to speak about the pop culture parent and 
Christian parenting and fantasy and all kinds of great stuff. So watch uh, watchlorehaven.com for the news about that conference that will occur the last weekend of May 2021 in Orlando, Florida. Okay, so here's our little appetizer for our discussion about aliens in theology. One of my friends, Matt, one of his kids was doing a report on the Cold War and uh, discovered something interesting. And I, I don't know where this comes from exactly, but the, uh, the quote was that both President Reagan and Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev agreed to pause the Cold War if there was ever an alien invasion. <laughs> Soon to be a new series on uh, Apple Plus or whatever it's oh, called. Oh, man, that'd be amazing. Yeah, the For All Mankind. Yeah, and, and my friend Matt was laughing about this because he's like, okay, so they only agreed to pause the war, not stop it. And so after they defeat the aliens, would they just start fighting the Cold War again? Like, what, <laughs> what, what exactly is the, uh, the game plan here? Well, speaking of game, that's a game that I would definitely play. I know that the recent, uh, what is it, the, the, the battle uh, series, uh, whatever it is, that uh, was set in the Cold War and actually features Ronald Reagan as a character. Oh, uh, I, yes. I would, I would, I would, I would love to. I would I would love to play, you know, some kind of a battle simulation, you know, like a Star Wars Battlefront style game uh, where you get to be either an American soldier or a Russian soldier uh, teaming up to stop the alien invasions. Uh, bonus points if you could play as President Ronald Reagan himself uh, riding a Velociraptor and firing an AK-47. <laughs> I love it. I, I mean, yeah, th this is a topic that it's easy to have fun with and we should have fun with it. Like we, we don't have to take it too seriously but but on the other hand like we need to think soberly about it we need to think biblically about it and for a, a couple of reasons people that you talk to in real life and people you talk to on the internet this is a very serious topic and because of where the attention is focused it's focused on our government on our military that's taking this very seriously and it's also becoming a serious topic in mainstream press you know it, it's on all the cable news, there's going to be, uh, as we record this uh, tomorrow night, there's going to be a major report from 60 Minutes about this. So this isn't just a tabloid talk anymore. NASA is taking it more seriously. They're looking for alien biosignatures and technosignatures. So, you know, signs of, uh, of life in the atmosphere or technology on other planets. But there's, a, there's another kind of fundamental reason why this topic interests me, Stephen. We've all seen the, is it the Pew Research kind of polls that talk about the rise of the nuns, you know, the, the N-O-N-E-S, like none, no religion, the emptying out of pews uh, across churches, and th this sort of void that's happening. Well, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, and what is filling that void is this kind of general spirituality. And quite a bit of that is overlapping with belief in aliens and at the far end, there are the alien cults, like the Raelians, which I just read a really fascinating interview with the leader of the Raelians. There are a few hundred thousand of them, but I, I think the bigger group is just people that are interested in topics like consciousness, because there's a view of aliens that it's not simply physical creatures in a physical craft, but interdimensional beings that somehow interface with our minds. And mm, this sounds kind of familiar. This is a topic that is fraught with intrigue and danger and questions. I think as Christians, we, we ought to make sense of it because this is become a, a central worldview for quite a few people. Worldview, I think, is exactly the correct term for this. One could make an error in setting this up as some kind of a Christianity versus science dichotomy. I don't see it that way at all. I see this as Christianity versus competitor religions. It is 100% faith versus faith not 
materialistic, actual world, you know, neutrality, just scientists trying to do the best they can uh, versus some ancient religion called Christianity. The world is full of religions. There's no reason at all to suppose that they stopped making up new religions. And uh, the last one was made up in 1873 or something like that. Religion can wear the cloak called science and falsely profess itself to be science. And the more we get into the whole, even the idea of aliens are not out there in their spaceship somewhere in the physical world that we see idea. And we get into more of the aliens are from another dimension and they actually cross over into your mind or your consciousness. Then you've given away the game. This is 100% a religion. And as such, it is worthy of respect as a dignified, honest foe. If someone came to me and said, I believe in aliens and I know this is my religion. Well, then I have a harder time because at least this person is being honest. And that is a sign of common grace. Either way, I must respect this person as God's image bearer, even if their image has gone awry, but at least I can be honest with that person, and that person is honest with me. If that person comes to me and says, I'm all about the science and you're about the religion, well, then you've just lost major respect points. I'm going to be more blunt with you, and we can't even have an honest conversation because in your world, uh, you're the only one in the real world, and I'm the only one doing the fantasy, whereas as far as I'm concerned, it's fantasy worldview versus fantasy worldview, and I believe my worldview is the true one. So a quick summary of what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at three major possible realities about alien life from a biblical perspective. So the first one will be uh, this view that God did not create life on any other planets anywhere. Uh, the second view is that God created other life, but no intelligent life. So no civilizational building life. And third view is that God created other intelligent species, but with a different plan than humanity. And so, yes, we, we will look at that possibility that there actually are intelligent aliens out there. And a lot of what we're going to talk about, though, is going to have some crossover with the Fermi paradox. And if you're not familiar with that, it's this idea of if there are so many aliens out there, then where are they? Why haven't we heard from them? Why haven't they visited? Uh, surely there's enough time that would have elapsed for some kind of contact to happen. But as so far as we know, there hasn't been any or has there. and uh, we're we're going to discuss a Christian view of that towards the end. Uh, but Stephen, you know, it's a topic like this, it's a huge topic, very controversial. I imagine we have something on the concession stand for our listener. Yeah, the oven just went ding, and uh, we can pull out a <laughs> sizzling hot tray of these lovely gray-green alien-shaped cookies. And I'd like to distribute them to each member of the audience as we go over the concessions really quick here. Of course, Christians have many views about uh, aliens. Uh, some of them, uh, especially if Christians have even more of a mystical or spiritual view of the world, plenty of views, of course, and this is the idea that I grew up with, uh, basically handle the whole thing by saying there are no aliens, but there are demons. And this is a spiritual deception that's going on. Uh, Christians need to be aware uh, because if all of the aliens are actually demons and this is some kind of satanic hoax that's going on, then that puts the ball firmly in our court. We can just say, well, uh, let's pull in all the spiritual warfare lessons that we learn from scripture. You can cast out an alien just like you would cast out a demon, just like Jesus cast a demon out of the a boy who was paralyzed and tried to throw him into the fire. And that's our strategy. That's another topic, though. Uh, we're actually not delving into that as much here. Uh, this is neither to confirm nor deny that all alien ideas are actually demons for the purpose of focusing here, just focusing. We're not going to talk about that notion so much. 
Hey, let me add something there, though. You know, as I've mentioned that the Department of Defense, the CIA, all, all these government agencies are looking into the alien topic. There are also people in the Pentagon who think exactly what you said, that aliens aren't real. It's just demons. It's all deception. So we shouldn't look into it. So that view, that very, I guess you call it fundamentalist view, that is represented also in our government. So for you, our listener, if that if you're hoping to hear that, you know, if you're worried about that, that that is happening there too. Well, let's get one of those guys onto Fantastical Truth because I would love to explore that, you know, not only because they are Christians who are aware of spiritual threats, but also they've been in the military and they have some experience to back that up. That'd be a fascinating thing to explore, but I'm sure, you know, half a dozen other podcasts out there have probably already beat us to those guests. There's another view that Christians have, uh, maybe not as uh, prevalent, uh, but it is something I've wondered about, is that maybe God has not created uh, alien life, extraterrestrials, uh, you know, life, sentient creatures with moral responsibility outside of planet Earth, but maybe he would do that in the future. Uh, some think, well, that's not going to happen because God has rested from his creation. He's no longer going to create new life and new civilizations. But uh, I've wondered, well, actually, the scripture says that God will create again. He will create new heavens and new earth, not just new earth, but new heavens. Like, could he create? creatures, even more animal-like creatures in the universe in the future? Maybe, uh, but we won't explore that as much now. Scripture is pretty silent on that topic, and we are talking about the present reality anyway. Another thing we're not going to go into as much, evolution. We still haven't done our big creation versus evolution episode that all other Christian podcasts are just so scared to touch that topic, but we would just delve into it if, if we ever wanted to, and maybe get somebody from the Creation Museum or something uh, to join us. I'm still a fan of Creation Museum. I'll just I'll just out myself there. Uh, the theistic evolutionists have not built as cool a museum, and they certainly haven't built the Noah's Ark. So if anything else, the young Earth creationists at Answers in Genesis have the edge on the creativity front. Anyway, we won't explore evolution as much here. Maybe life doesn't exist yet, so goes the idea, uh, but it could just uh, evolve out there somewhere. You know, Maybe there's a process of evolution shaped by God, and if you give enough time, life will develop on another planet. Uh, but we won't go into that debate here, evolution versus creation. Uh, we do, however, assume, I think it's safe to say, Zach and I both assume a belief in creation, uh, but we're going to try to give any equal time uh, to proponents of old earth creation and uh, young earth creation. I myself believe in the young earth creation. I'll just go ahead out on that limb and uh, hope that nobody saws it off. I'm lean more towards old earth creation. I honestly don't have too firm of a stance one way or the other, but if I, if I had to choose, it would probably be that. But in either case, I have a lot of questions and I have, you know, I don't know how to answer all those questions. And, and that's okay because ultimately I think that there is a way, I mean, I know a scientist, an astrophysics professor that's a Christian, Dr. Sarah Salviander. She actually makes sense of both of these uh, using uh, the theory of time dilation or, or general relativity and saying, look, 14 billion years and six days can actually work together because of time dilation. So look, someone smarter than me, uh, much smarter than me can make sense of this. I think there's a way to make sense of it, but yeah, as it is, I, I lean more old earth. Yeah. Uh, there are ways I think to make sense of all of that, but there are a few biblical non-negotiables. One of them is a literal Adam and Eve. And one of them is the centrality of earth and God's plan. And another one of them I believe is no death resulting from evil in the world before Adam's and Eve choice to rebel and take the forbidden fruit. A lot of views assume that animal death, any of those eons of suffering 
uh, is just a natural part of development before you get Adam and Eve. Uh, I, I, I don't see that rhyming at all with the biblical narrative, yeah, uh, either, either rationally or poetically. For me, I think that rules out the old earth. But anyway, we said we weren't going to get into that. Just like we <laughs> already said, uh, the final snack here from the tray, uh, mind you, the crumbs. Uh, we won't go into the UFO phenomenon as much. So we've already covered that before in Fantastical Truth, episodes 22 and 47. And very likely we will circle back to that once again this summer uh, when the Senate Intelligence Report on UFOs is released. And everybody goes nuts and maybe forgets about politics for a few minutes anyway. Oh, see, that's why I love this topic. So let's go ahead and dive into our first possibility here. First of three, the first of three that we're going to talk about. So possibility number one is that God did not create life on any other planets. Now, look, I, I got to respect this view. It's very clean. It's very simple. It's, hey, there's no aliens because God did not create any other life. Not Not only no aliens, just no life, period. You know, as we look into... Our own solar system, we see no life there now. There was some recent hubbub about maybe there's mushrooms on Mars, but that's not really accepted. It's just kind of a very, very loose theory. Marshrooms. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, now, this is a view that is held by both, interestingly here, this is a view held by both fundamentalist Christians and very skeptical scientists. So again, Ken Ham and Bill Nye might actually find some common ground here. And that, I find that to be very fascinating. And hey, as far as we know, it is the correct view because there is no hard evidence yet to the contrary. For the Christian, though, this comes from, as, as I understand this view, comes from a very literal reading of Genesis 1. We're starting in verse 14 where it says, quote, Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons, for days, and years. Verse 17. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, end quote. So the idea here is that all the other stars in the Milky Way, and in fact, all the other galaxies in the universe, don't have life or the possibility of life. They only exist to, to provide starlight on the earth and to help our calendar system. What do you think about this, Stephen? Yeah, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that view. A similar view is that there may be potentially habitable worlds. Like we have found planets in the Goldilocks zone of sun-like stars, Earth-sized planets. So, hey, look, maybe those are there so that when humanity spreads throughout the galaxy, we will terraform those planets and bring life to them and sort of keep fulfilling the, you know, be fruitful and multiply command from the Lord. And, you know, like we, we go terraform these planets and this is, uh, basically the view of Lamb Among the Stars, which, which again, we've I, I love this book. We talk about it a lot. It's a post-millennial-based view that humankind will spread throughout the galaxy and, and sort of bring God's kingdom everywhere, and then Jesus will return. But, you know, this idea that life right now doesn't exist, the, the view of that is is often founded on Isaiah 45, 18, which says, quote, For this is what the Lord says, He who created the heavens, He is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other, end quote. So the idea here is that God created, it, it, it's, it's interesting because you can actually draw from this that yes, God created other planets, but only the earth was meant to have life, to be inhabited. Yeah, And so people sort of take this, draw a conclusion here that, God did not create the other planets to be inhabited. 
he, he created them to be empty, to be without life. And he created the earth to be with life. So yeah, again, a very literal, hard kind of reading of that. I, I could see where that view could come from. Now, let me just go ahead and give it away here. I, I think this is a very tenuous view for a simple reason. It's because it would only take one discovery of life on another planet, like a unambiguous, clear discovery, not, not the Mars, Mars mushrooms, not the phosphine they've discovered in Venus, but you know, a very clear view of a tree or something on another planet to prove this view wrong. So it, it seems to me like a little bit of a house of cards. And depending on how core a belief this is for someone, it, it could really damage their faith. And so, you know, my opinion about this view is it's not a great view to hold because we are really going to see some things very soon on other planets. And you'd have to hold this very loosely. Or again, you'd have to, to be right every time that every planet the James Webb Telescope or the Hubble Telescope looks at, there ain't no life there. And it sort of also sets up another interesting conflict, Stephen. What if humans settle on Mars? And, and what if we do somehow create plant life there? You know, what, what if we are able to grow food? And then what if people are born there? Well, then that sort of disproves this idea that only the Earth can be inhabited. So I, I think a very hard, literal reading of these passages uh, can lead to trouble theologically. I like your phrase earlier where you said, if you hold this view, do hold it loosely because it does depend on that absolute negative and it depends on an entire universe full of absolute negatives. My guess is we won't begin to explore even half the solar system before Christ returns. Uh, that's our other topic, of course, in the future. <laughs> but that's, uh, that's a lot of faith resting on a very precarious foundation. I am, however, sympathetic to this view and we'll get into that next topic in a moment about what we mean by life. But in this case, I'm, I'm sympathetic because the Bible is so earth-centric, not just the verse you read, but you know the entire right. creation narrative, the entire gospel narrative. It is so earth-centric, and it can be uh, completely understandable for a Christian to look out into space and go, well, why would you want to go there? You know, Earth is the only friendly planet to our form of life uh, in, in the solar system. Uh, and, you know, theologically and just based on common sense, like life can't survive out there. However, it then makes sense if a non-Christian looks out to the stars and then wonders, well, what in the world are they for? Or even a Christian could look out there and go, well, why would God create not just stars, which are mentioned in day four of Genesis, but planets orbiting mm -hmm. the stars, which are not mentioned in day four of Genesis? Like, why would there be other worlds, other planets, not just gas giants, but, you know, rock giants, you know, planets where you could actually set your foot down on the soil and it holds up with some kind of gravity. What are those for? And so it can be tempting as a Christian or non-Christian to think, well, there must be some kind of life. There must be some other kind of story on there because we have this desire for meaning. If there is a world, there must be a story there. I get around that rather easily because of the idea that Christ will return and not just nuke the place in favor of heaven in another dimension, but he will renew his universe, creating a new heavens, new earth from the old ones, make them new again, remove all the suffering and evil. And then, oh, then maybe we know what all those planets are for. Like you mentioned earlier, they're for settlement, they're for terraforming, they're for spreading the glory of the Lord, not just across the earth, but across the stars. And my view is that that would only happen 
after Christ returned, uh, not before. But I think that that's what all those worlds are for. It's a bit of an Easter egg to unlock. And scripture, of course, is silent on the question. But this speculation is within the realm of the gospel. And I think it is a more biblical answer than there are already other aliens out there, you know, morally responsible creatures, and they have their own stories. And, you know, maybe we're not so special here on Earth with our gospel story. I think that begins to weaken the gospel and, and is a view that Christians should reject. I'll tell you why I'm sympathetic to this viewer, or at least in part. So I, I can hear Carl Sagan or Ellie Arroway's voice in my head, where Ellie Arroway at the end of Contact says, well, if, if we're the only life, then it seems like a waste of space to have all these other stars and galaxies and whatnot. To which I would say, well, that's from a human perspective, but from God's perspective, he created the heavens to display his glory and his splendor. It's potential space. It's a fixer-upper yeah. in the future, if, even if not now. Well, but, but even if it's not that, even if that never happens, the, the stars were made to display his right. glory. It says this over and over again, the Psalm, Psalm 8, the heavens declare the glory of God. And also, if we're saying that, you know, he made all of these stars and galaxies, and but only life here, well, think how special that makes us and how extravagant he is to visit this planet and to make an entire universe just for this planet. Actually, the interesting thing is there is a scientific argument that we needed an entire galaxy of 200 billion stars to make one star with one habitable planet. There, there's actually a secular argument for that. It's not just a Christian argument. But a lot of secularists have rejected this idea of like, that's saying, you know, Earth is at the center of the universe, or which we know it's not, but okay, but it's the center of God's attention. Right. He's the one that wrote the rules. So who's to put limits on God and what he can create and why? So I, I think this is a fine biblical view. It's just that all it takes is one discovery to sort of upend it. So that leads us into our, our second possibility here, which is that God created other life, but not intelligent life. So he created plant life, animal life, viruses, bacteria, whatever. And it's just all created on these other planets out there, but, but there's no like intelligent species that have his image, that have a moral dimension to them. I'll just go and say right up front, Again, we don't have evidence for this yet, so I'm I'm assuming that this evidence exists. And then but what I want to do is I want to be prepared for this evidence from a scriptural point of view. And to you our listener, you may have a better scriptural uh basis for this view. If if I, we would love to hear from you about that. But here's sort of where I come at this. So from Genesis 1:20 and through 22 it says, quote, "Then God said, let the water swarm with living Creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the sea and let the birds multiply in the earth. End quote. Now, why am I quoting this? It's because, first of all, I'm a creationist. So I, I think any life that we discover in the universe was created by God. And the possibility I'm bringing up here is that at the same time God created animal and plant life here, he created it elsewhere. That it's not just a earth teeming with life, but it's a universe teeming with life that he created all at once. But this is the only planet he created humans, at least according to this view. So this brings up a fun possibility. Although humans are the only intelligent species at all, the galaxy is ours to colonize. So then we become the aliens. And 
And again, there's a little bit of support for this. If you stretch it a little bit, and this is Mark 13, 27, where Jesus says, quote, he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven, end quote. So this is what Stephen alluded to earlier. Will humans colonize the cosmos? Are we going to go to other star systems or even just planets here in our solar system? Is that going to happen before Jesus returns? I mean, okay, that's a whole episode, right? And Stephen wrote an article about this on Spec Faith, and that's what first got my attention on Spec Faith. It's a fascinating topic, and I, I think that there is possible room to believe that could happen. I don't know that it's realistically going to happen, but it's possible. Well, there's plenty of room for expansion on this topic into that area as well. I think that was actually the title of the article, Will Christians Colonize the Cosmos Before Jesus Returns? Zach, I have to say that of these three views, I think this is my view because I don't think that the entire gospel is thrown asunder if a telescope or a future explorer uh, discovers a fungus on Mars or a microbe, even if it's dead or something like that. That does not at all call into question the gospel. And I've mentioned before that we've had uh, Randall Ingermanson on Fantastical Truth previously, and he and his uh, co-author John Olson back in the early 2000s wrote two books about explorers sent to Mars, including one Christian astronaut. They were called Oxygen and the Fifth Man. And uh, the Fifth Man, more so than Oxygen, focused on the question of life on Mars and what happens if you find something. Will this overthrow the gospel or challenge the idea that Earth is central in God's redemptive plan? I don't believe that it would. I don't know where exactly you'd fit some kind of a you know, patch of grass or some kind of a, a you know, cell organism or something on another planet in the order of creation in Genesis 1, but it doesn't overthrow the gospel. Uh, it's not a morally responsible creature you know, with a higher will and the, uh, you know, the reflection of God's image. It's just a living thing, a plant maybe even an animal and something like a troglodyte or something like that, that I would just fit into God's creation somewhere. Now, after all, those six days of creation don't describe when God created the angels, do they? Commentators throughout church history have had to try to figure out, okay, if God created everything, then you know, where does he create the angels? Well, clearly the six days of creation are focused on the creation of earth. And as I've mentioned, they don't even mention the other planets. So we see things that we know God created that aren't specifically mentioned here. It wouldn't mess my gospel perspective at all to find out that there was a fungus on Mars or Titan or somewhere like that. All right. So now I know my challenge uh, to our listener. Maybe you've realized it as well. It's this third view we're going to go into now. God created other intelligent species out there in the universe, but with a different plan than humanity. So what we got to do now is we got to find out a way to not have this view overthrow the gospel, as Stephen said, and I think there is a way to do it, and we will get into that. I challenge you to do it, because I, <laughs> I now hereby, I've already outed myself as a six-day creationist, a literal YEC. <laughs> I don't go through the Ark Encounter attraction wincing or anything like that. So now, go ahead and try to persuade me of this one, and I'm going to rebut it as best I can, because I, I'm not at all persuaded about this one. Okay. So again, first, I'm going to start with a couple of assumptions or just a couple of my own personal thoughts. What I like about this view is that it creates expectancy, that as we bring the James Webb telescope online this year, as we send perhaps these breakthrough starshot probes to Alpha Centauri and take a look around, 
as we create other space telescopes in the future, we should expect to find more of God's creative handiwork, including other intelligent beings. The foundation of this view, though, theologically, is that God is free to do whatever he wants. Mm-hmm. So at the same time, we know there are things God won't do or, or chooses not to do it, or he restrains himself or by his nature, he's restrained. A big one that I know uh, you're alluding to is that Christ will not die again. Right. So that is, uh, that is a very hard line in the sand that we know he will not die again. How do we know that real quick? Like how, how, do, how do we know that for sure? I, I think I can articulate it, but do you want to give that one a go real quick? Because some people I've heard, especially in the more fantasy-oriented uh, set of our brothers and sisters in Christ, they will go, well, uh, let's say there's another planet out there, and let's say that they have their own you know, creation fall narrative, and God's working with them, and we, and we just don't know it. And so maybe Jesus would incarnate as one of their race and then do the whole thing all over again. And then maybe, you know, at the end of uh, Jesus comes back and then we, we all, we all get together and we find out, oh, uh, there was more than one uh, planet out there that Jesus was doing this on. So this comes from Romans 6, 9. It says, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Boom. Death no longer has mastery over him. So yeah, that is, that is the hard line in the sand that we know that's the limit. He's not going to die right. again. It's a once for all sacrifice. And, yeah. and what, what also is very important here to note is that Jesus is Jesus forever. Uh, there's this implication, I think, that some uh, Christians or some people who've uh, been church adjacent have that at the ascension or even at the resurrection, oh, God forbid, Jesus ceased being human. Uh, he was actually a spiritoid. You know, maybe he shed his corporeal form on the way up at the ascension and uh, has returned to just being a pre-incarnate son of God. That's, that's a horrible notion. That's a very unbiblical notion that Jesus is no longer both fully God and fully man. He is, in a sense, locked in. This is not a limit on God. This, as you said, Zach, good wording earlier, is that God is free to do whatever he wants. He is shaped by his own will, not by any outside limits on his nature. Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, wants to be fully God and fully man the rest of eternity. We will get to see his wounds in his resurrection body in heaven and in the new heavens and new earth. Uh, he's not going to drop that form, run off and be the alien version of Jesus for a while and then pop back in uh, and then surprising either the aliens or us at what he looks like uh, when we finally get to meet him. That is, I think, unbiblical speculation. Of course, it gets a little bit um, different when you're talking about, you know, Aslan or somebody in a fantasy world who is actually a version of Jesus. Like, well, that's a little bit easier for me to accept because that's fantasy. That's another dimension. It's not our universe. It is a story. It is 100% a story. I don't think that anything like that can happen in this universe with Jesus, who is incarnate as God and as man forever. Okay. So yes, we are totally on the same page there. Now, this is where I will disagree with what I'll call the Ken Ham view. Ken Ham has said, and I'm paraphrasing, that because Jesus can't die again, he couldn't save Vulcans, therefore Vulcans do not exist. And so I think that is a flawed logic that because Christ can't die again, there can't be other fallen creatures. And I I think this is disproven directly by Scripture. Number one, we know that not all humans will be saved. So is Christ's blood wasted, you know, because not all people are saved? We also know that angels who fall into 
rebellion and become demons, they will not be saved. Right. And we know right there, hey, God has created other moral creatures that are intelligent beings. Now, they're not biological beings, but is it really such a stretch to think that he couldn't have created other biological beings that could have a moral nature that could have fallen into sin? Now, there's also some other possibilities here. Perhaps he created other intelligent beings and they weren't tempted and they didn't fall. Yeah, that's the Malachandrans in uh, Lewis's Ransom Trilogy. Right. Yeah, they're essentially innocent. Mm-hmm. So imagine Adam and Eve, they never had a snake in the garden that tempted him to take the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, or perhaps there wasn't a fruit there. Uh, perhaps they didn't have the opportunity to sin. But what we know is that there are going to be other creatures, intelligent creatures, that will not be redeemed. And so that's the other possibility that there could be other, let's just say other humans or other beings on other planets that are fallen into sin and God chooses not to save them. Perhaps he made humans in a lot of places, but this is the only planet with humans where he became a man. He became one of us to save us, or perhaps he made Vulcans and Klingons, but he only chose to become a human uh, to, to put on human flesh and die for the human race. So this brings up Romans 9. <laughs> uh-huh. So th- this is my answer to this dilemma. I'm, I'm going to say at the uh, at the front here, I, I, I would not call myself a five-point Calvinist. I was, I even... was wondering if you were going there, because yeah. what you're talking about here is reprobation. The idea right. that God has the right to make a vessel prepared for destruction, or as the Apostle Paul says, just asking what if, really. He just right. says, what if God has the right to make a vessel for destruction that he's not planning to save, that has no possibility of being saved, but we already know he does, demons. There is no redemption plan for demons. And even if you go for, real quick here, if, if you go for a literal view of the tribulation, there is no possibility of salvation for someone who takes the mark of the beast, if it's literal. It's right there, uh, even in the beliefs of Christians who want to emphasize free will. It's right there in Scripture. There's still some kind of reprobation. Well, what about their free will? Clearly, we've got a challenge if we want to maximize on the free will and uh, risk minimizing the free choice of God. Right. So I wrestle a lot with Romans 9. I'm, I'm not always sure how to make sense of that. I'm, I'm not a five-point Calvinist. But look, I'm sympathetic to the view that God is free to do whatever he wants. You know, Wayne Grudem in Systematic Theology talks about this, that whether you take a Calvinist or Arminius view, you agree that not all people will be saved. And you also agree where it says God wants all people to be saved, but he also wants something else. Right. Either he wants people to have the ultimate choice or he wants, or, or God wants to be sovereign over who is saved or over who is elect. But in either case, not all will be saved. And this is something that everyone agrees on. And, and that's kind of where I start from. And, Somewhere or another, God set it up that not everyone would be saved. So is it really a stretch to say there could be an entire planet of people that cannot be saved and that, that he chooses not to save? And, and again, we, we have to look at it from another angle, which is that in Romans 2, it talks about Gentiles who don't, weren't given the law understand the law. It's the requirements are written on their heart. So he could have created moral creatures that know right and wrong, but that aren't saved or, or never received the word of God because that happens now. 
It does bring the uncomfortable question up though. Like why are all these people not going to be saved? Why are all these people being born, living their lives and dying without the gospel getting to them? You know, this is the age old question. What about, what about the people that have never heard? And the simple answer is God will judge them accordingly. Like he, the judge of the earth will do what is right. Amen. He will, he will judge people according to what they know and what they did. God does not owe salvation to anyone. What, what we are owed is, you know, a fair judgment for how we live. The, the gospel is grace. It's mercy. It's not what we deserve. It's not getting what we deserve, which is justice. And it's getting what we don't deserve, which is eternal life. Because ultimately we're all accountable to a holy God. So is it possible he's created this, these entire planets with civilizations that, that don't get saved? You know, it's an uncomfortable possibility. I will definitely grant that. It, it seems to rub us wrong because how in the world are missionaries supposed to get there? You know, or even if we could build an antenna to broadcast messages to them, would, would they allow Christians to broadcast the gospel out there? Would the, would the humanists, you know, not allow that? Like, ah, we're not going to do that. Now, I, I will bring up, again, a, a very stretch possibility. This is John 10, 16, where Jesus says, quote, I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd, end quote. Now, most likely he's referring to the Gentiles. Right. But hey, what are aliens but the ultimate Gentiles? So are we supposed to go out there and evangelize them, go get on spaceships? You know, that was the plot of uh, The Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell. It's about these Jesuit missionaries who are the first interstellar astronauts, and they, they go to this planet where they discover life. Look, I don't know, but I think there's a core question there. Well, are we supposed to go somewhere really far away, really hard to get to, really dangerous? And hey, that's exactly what Jim and Elizabeth Elliot wrestled with about going to the Alka, this extremely remote, extremely violent tribe, very hard to communicate with, just very hard to, I mean, obviously very hard to just talk to them because it was so perilous. And look, God expects expects us to do that. That is part of the Great Commission. I don't know that that extends to going to other planets, but it's just interesting that, that those two questions go so closely together that, that we think, oh, it'll be easy. It'll be simple to spread the gospel. Maybe it's not so simple. Fascinating. I did not expect you to pull what is effectively a, a Calvinist argument on me, which I'm, <laughs> I'm clearly very susceptible to that. But okay, so just to review... If there are, again, we're not talking about plants or fungi or anything like that. We're talking about morally responsible, sentient creatures, human-like in their rationality, even if not form or appearance. There's only two categories for them that could be conceivable biblically. The one is that they are somehow innocent, unaffected by sin. And the other is that they are reprobate. Uh, They cannot be saved because there is only one means of salvation through Christ for those who reflect God's image, and those are humans. And in the view of Reformed Christians, theologically uh, Reformed, only particular humans, the elect, God has issued his will of command that all should repent and be saved, but God has also, in this view, uh, issued his will of decree. Only some will be saved, not based on anything they've done, but by the absolute mercy of God, which looks random to us, but is not random to God. So in this view, aliens can't be saved. There's only two categories. One is a little happier and the other is grimdark. 
guess which one I'm going to go for. If I were to accept this view, I would go for the grimdark one uh, <laughs> that uh, any aliens are reprobate. Uh, if that causes any Christian to stumble at uh, the idea that you know God would declare something, a vessel prepared for destruction, well, the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, whatever he's talking about, raises at least the possibility that that is just what God has done. This is the Apostle Paul we're talking about here. Uh, and this is not new to the Apostle Paul either. Uh, there are many references in the Old Testament to God declaring either people in Israel, a particular generation, or a particular group of Israel's enemies outside salvation. Their time is up. There's no longer any hope. If they had any free will before, it's gone now. A similar principle applies in Revelation. If you take it literally, as I mentioned earlier, if you take the mark of the beast, then that's it. You're reprobate. You have surrendered any will you had before. You no longer have the choice to get saved, uh, even if you wanted to. Apart from all that, of course, demons are reprobate. There's no salvation plan for demons that we know of. They are 100% universal evil. There is no tragic backstory other than their fall following uh, Satan or Lucifer or whomever back in the past that we don't actually know about much from Scripture. This is plausible. So why not then throw some uh, group of hypothetical extraterrestrials into that, you know, as an additional category of reprobate beings? Lest I skip over too quickly, though, the idea that there is an alien race out there that are more like uh, the Malachandrians or the Green Lady from Paralandra in Lewis's Ransom Trilogy who is tempted in this sort of parallel Eden-type situation. But ultimately, just spoiler alert, uh, she and her husband, the king, uh, do not fall into temptation. And there is a chance to have paradise all over again and you know, kind of skip the whole redemption part and, and just stay good for the rest of that planet's history. I don't think that that scenario works of, of innocence uh, because... There's only one group in scripture that arguably was not corrupted by sin, and that's the angels. And we don't know whether angels could still fall, you know, individually. Uh, we're not told that. The scripture is not as interested in that as it is interested in the gospel narrative applied to human beings. Uh, sorry, there's some secret things that still belong to God, but there's revealed things that belong to us and our children forever. So we don't know. Scripture is completely silent. But at least we know that as far as we know, angels are the big good. You know, it's not like God himself has any chance of falling. You know, the, the, the temptation or the, uh, the fall of man, however, did corrupt the universe. I think that corruption has not just been limited to planet Earth, but has somehow poisoned the entire universe of reality that we see. And I think that would include any aliens, uh, any um, hypothetical extraterrestrials, with moral responsibility. So again, I could be persuaded to believe that if they exist, they're evil. So that makes me a little bit grimdark, but eh, you know, what would you expect from someone who <laughs> believes in total depravity or total inability, <laughs> uh, which I do? Okay, so I, I will shine a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel here. So again, this is where I'm going to break a little bit from Ken Ham, because Ken Ham would say, if death and sin have spread to the entire creation and any other alien species that are out there have fallen into sin and death because of the sin of Adam and the, the death that was brought into creation. Why couldn't salvation also go to those same species? And again, this is a bit of a stretch here, but this is where I think the other sheep 
verse in John 10 could apply. Yeah. And what I'm thinking of specifically is if you read books like More Than Dreams or books like Peace Child, Eternity in Their Hearts, you will read these really just hair-raising stories of very remote tribal people or Muslim people in the 1040 window who have literal incredible visions and dreams of Jesus preaching the gospel to them and they get saved I or, love they, those they, stories or they so meet much. a Christian. Yeah. And my favorite one is peace child where they have this concept already that to solve a dispute between two warring tribes, tribe a hands over the only son of the tribal leader or whoever to the other tribe who raises him and he becomes one of them. And that brings peace between the, the two tribes and they stop their warring with each other. I mean, just incredible stuff like that, that, you know, again, literally God has put eternity in their heart. So, Hey, couldn't he have done that with other aliens out there? And what if he is providing visions and dreams to them? Or, Hey, if we get in touch with aliens and we somehow get in control of the, you know, the broadcast satellites and we can send the gospel, well, why not? I mean, the parable of the sower talks about, look, just scatter the seed everywhere. If it goes on the rocks, if it goes in the, the sidewalk, if it goes in the thorny you know, soil, it's okay. We're just, we're trying to find good soil. We don't know what the good soil is going to be. We should just preach the gospel. So I, I don't know. I, I think any of these are, again, these, these are all very fringe possibilities, but we'll see what happens when we start discovering more about these planets. I think fringe is a, is a good word there. Not, not a bad word, a good word. I, I definitely, I'm glad you recognize that it is a stretch to read, you know, hypothetical alien life into the, the idea of Gentiles there. Uh, there's a whole meaning loaded into that divide of Jews and Gentiles and the commonality that these people groups had at the time that Jesus said that and still have now to an extent is that they are all descended from Adam and Eve. They're all human beings. No one can be classified as a Gentile, even by a stretch, if they're not a human being descended from Adam and Eve. Uh, I think that is that is the limiting idea there. It is 100% assumed throughout the continuity of Scripture that God is on a rescue mission, not just for Jews or Gentiles, but for select members of the human race. And that started with the calling out of a people group, you know, Israel, you know, particular descendants of a particular man who had particular sons. And then Israel was meant to be a light to the Gentiles. It was meant to start there and then spread out. And Christians believe we see the fulfillment of that in Christ, the final sacrifice, who then inaugurated the church, whose members, the apostles and everyone else, the missionaries, then go out and they start fulfilling that promise. The promise still starts in Israel and it spreads out to the rest of the earth. But the redemption plan there is for Gentiles and Jews only. It's for Adam's race. It's for the human race. I don't think you read aliens into that. So I, I, I don't want to darken the light. I just think that if there yeah. is some other redemption plan, uh, if, if we're going to go in that direction, then it would need to be something more like, you know, Aslan dying for Edmund and Narnia or something like right. that. It's like you'd have to be so fantastical that it would be more like whatever God is doing with the angels and demons that we're not told about. Uh, I don't think that Christ's sacrifice, as we know it, uh, is going to help redeem aliens or give them light or anything like that. If they exist, they're either somehow incorrupted or they don't think they're not morally responsible or they fall under one of the categories of reprobation. 
Yeah, I just think that if we're going to bring up the view, all have fallen in Adam and then all will be redeemed in Christ. Well, if aliens are not in Adam, then they don't inherit Adam's sinful nature. Well, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a true point. Yeah, yeah. so, so that, that's where, again, that's where I think Ken Ham and others get this wrong by saying, well, they, they can't be saved. And it's like, well, what if they haven't fallen into sin the same way we have? Yeah. Or again, what if God just has completely other plans for how they could be redeemed and we just can't even imagine? Right. I think so. you have a good point in, in critiquing the idea, and, and I have heard Ken Ham say this and some other authors, that if you know, aliens can't exist because if they did, then they would fall into the curse, but not under the redemption and right. implied that's unfair. I go, why is it unfair? Demons can't be saved. If you take the mark of the beast, whatever that means, you can't be saved. And if you believe in reformed soteriology, a study of salvation, then if you're not elect, you can't be saved. Ultimately, like there's, it's no knock against God's nature or mercy to choose not to save people. Uh, this is a very harsh truth, but the apostle Paul himself is asking, well, maybe God chooses to create vessels prepared for destruction. Like you've got to be at least open to the possibility. So that idea doesn't bother me you know, that there could be aliens who don't get saved, but I, I still think it's. It's problematic to say that aliens could be out there and then they're somehow uh, innocent because the whole scope of creation is meant to be for humans. Uh, humans are the only divinely appointed stewards of creation. God gives humans the cultural mandate, which I think ultimately is not limited to Earth, but will extend into the furthest reaches of the galaxy and beyond. You know, millennia, you know, tens of millennia, millennia of, of millennia from now. Who knows where redeemed humankind will be? And then what are you going to do? You have a class of civilizations because, you know, Christ has assigned humans to do this. Well, then we will be colonizers, uh, even in a perfect <laughs> world. Like, are we going to displace the aliens? I think the cultural mandate gets in the way of the, of the alien hypothesis as much as the Great Commission gets in the way. One correction. I, I said Romans 6, but it's actually Romans 5. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and this way death spread to all people, because all sins, that's Romans 5.12. So yeah, again, I, I think if, if we're going to talk about salvation coming to humans because Christ became a human, well, it works the other way, is that sin came to humans because it started with the first human. So right. I, I don't think that, I think death comes to all creation, like all creation yes. is, uh, it groans. But I don't think sin goes to all creation. I don't, I don't think animals sin. And, and, and like you said, I don't think angels sin because of Adam's sin. I, I think it works a little bit different for them. And then it's 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And again, look, maybe uh, God has other ways that, that aliens that even sin on their own terms could be redeemed or maybe not. But all, again, all we know is that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. Right. Now, we're going to get into the Fermi paradox here because we, we can't avoid it. Because, okay, let's say there's all these aliens out there in the universe. Why haven't we heard from them? You know, of course, unless there's UFOs. Why haven't uh, we encountered them? Will we encounter them? What, what, is that, what does the great silence mean? And there's all kinds of interesting videos and articles about this from a secular perspective. I'm going to tackle this, though, from a biblical perspective. And I got a few possibilities here. First one, I'll just go through these quickly. The old earth creationist view would say that, yeah, God created intelligent life elsewhere. It's just too far away to reach us. It's in an entirely other side of the Milky Way or another galaxy, or it's just 
interstellar communication and travel is basically impossible. So that's really no different from a secular view. But the young earth creationist view is very interesting, which is that, yeah, God created intelligent life elsewhere. It's too young to reach us, that it's only a few thousand years old, just like humanity. So it's not any more advanced than us. Because what's built into the Fermi paradox is a billions year old view of the universe that, well, surely, you know, since Earth didn't happen until a year of 10 billion, what about a planet that was, it came about in year 9 billion or year 1 billion? Surely there are aliens billions of years more advanced than us. Why haven't they gotten here? Well, the young Earth creationist view, you know, your view, Stephen, would say it's simple (laughs) because they're only a few thousand years old. They're not very advanced at all. If they exist, I mean, a young Earth, exist, yeah. yeah, most young Earth creationists would say, as, as we discussed, that they don't sure. exist. But for the sake of example, let's say we have a, a very, very fringe, very experimentally minded, uh, open minded young Earth creationist who would say, yeah. like, yeah, they're, they're, no, what do you mean by they're too young? Like they, they don't have warp capability or, or they're just, uh, you know, oozing about like a troglodyte or something. R- yeah, like, like that. Like they don't have any, uh, more advanced technology than we have. Okay. Because, Stone Age aliens, if you borrow yeah. the evolutionary timescale. Okay. Or or maybe they have spaceships, but you know, no interstellar warp drives. Another possibility, this is a fun one, is the zookeeper hypothesis that basically we are being kept in this zoo, sort of like the prime directive, and the other aliens aren't interfering with us because we are in the cage stage of you know galactic uh, evolution or whatever. And uh, again, this is a secular view, but C.S. Lewis actually kind of had this view in religion and rocketry. He talks about like maybe God is holding us in like a sort of a cage, like a solar system wide cage, not allowing us to leave so that we don't corrupt other species that he's created out there. Well, that's the exact premise of the Ransom Trilogy as well. Also called the Space Trilogy is that Earth is the silent planet. No one's ever heard from them for a while. It's being ruled by the bent one. There's other stories going on in Malacandra, Mars, and Paralandra, uh, Venus, uh, as well as the uh, the other planets. And no, nobody really wants to go to Earth or, or talk about Earth because like, they're the ones that have gone awry out here amongst the aether of uh, outer space, uh, which is improperly called space because the glory of the Lord still shines in this realm. This is where the good stuff is still happening, and then Earth is the only uh, bad agent. Now, the last possibility here from a a biblical perspective that I can think of is what's called, it's kind of the inverse of the zookeeper. It's the guardian hypothesis that that yes, God's created other aliens, other intelligent species, but he's keeping them isolated. He's keeping us protected from them. And here's where I find support for this. It's Revelation 9. Yes. And this gets into the grim dark thing that you mentioned that yes, he's created other aliens. Yes, they are fallen beyond repair. They are malevolent beings. And, you know, here come the alien invasion movies, you know, where they're just here to steal, kill, and destroy. I think there is very strong support for this view from Revelation 9 because we see this, you know, it's it's a long passage, but we see this um, a star fall from the heaven and it opens the shaft of the abyss. You know, it makes this huge impact in the ground, makes this big crater. And then these beings come out of it that are clearly intelligent, physical beings because they can, number one, harm people, but number two, they are limited to what, who they can harm. They are not allowed to harm the plants and animals, but only people and only certain people, only the people that don't have the mark of God on their forehead. 
And so, you know, there's an ironic twist to Revelation that I love because before this, you see the Mark of the Beast, like you mentioned, Stephen, where... Although Mark of the Beast, uh, technically Mark of the Beast is in a, a few chapters later. So it's actually okay. the, the Mark of the Lamb is what comes first. The, the uh, oh, 144,000 right. are sealed. And then at least, you know, the left behind version, you've got an expansion to the Gentile community or other Jews who are not specifically the 144,000. Uh, God puts a mark on their forehead. And then in the fiction version, the left behind series, you can then you know, recognize one another. It's a, it's a secret right. handshake just caused by sight. And then after that, it is uh, it is the beast that counterfeits this mark uh, with the mark mm-hmm. of his own. Uh, but then anyone who, who does not, anyone who's not a saint is being stung by these locusts, demon locusts who have women's hair and the teeth like lions and all of this. That's the fifth trumpet judgment. I still remember all of my lessons. And uh, if, if I had to pick a favorite plague, <laughs> because only a weird Christian would do that from the book <laughs> of Revelation, uh, it might be this one. Maybe it's neck and neck with the demonic horsemen, uh, you know, with the snake-like tails and the scorpion stings. And, oh, no, it's the demon locusts have the scorpion stings. No, the horsemen are also amazing. And that's the oh, sixth yeah. trumpet judgment that follows in quick succession. This one, you only suffer for five months of absolute agony and you become temporarily immortal. You can't even kill yourself to free yourself from the pain the demonic horsemen, by contrast, will just kill you. And yes, if you could argue any appearance of alien creatures in the Bible, this would be it. Either this is full metaphor or it is a literal future event. And if it's a literal future event, then you've got an opening for some kind of alien invasion right here. And honestly, I've thought about that for some time. And I've wondered if maybe this could be one of those reprobate alien species or two of them here who are somehow tied in with demons and then used like the enemy nations surrounding Israel as a means of judgment entirely apart from whatever judgment God's going to do on them. And really briefly, I do think a lot of the the UFO phenomenon, there is a spiritual demonic component to it. And there's, we've talked about that before, but I think there is clearly a physical aspect to it as well. And maybe what it is, is God putting the pieces into place for Revelation 9. Maybe he's allowing these species to kind of stage their forces and maybe we're getting closer and closer to when this is going to happen. Because again, if these are actual alien beings from another planet, they've got to get here at some point. Now, maybe they have warp drives, then get here instantly, or maybe they have traveled here and God is sort of holding them at bay. Because again, just look at the passage that they aren't allowed to harm vegetable and animal life. They aren't allowed to harm Christians and they aren't allowed to kill non-Christians. They can only torture them essentially. So they have all of these limits on them that they have to obey. That is very interesting to me that they are not entirely free creatures to do whatever they want, but they are under the control of God. So, hey, maybe he is, he's setting up the game right now. I, I don't know. But again, it, it's, it's a way to make sense of this. I'm not saying it's, it is what it is, but it, it kind of works. Dude, that, does that mean that the door in the dragon's throat, that the star fallen from heaven somehow unlocks in, uh, in Revelation 9? before the fifth trumpet judgment is the door in the dragon's throat, a wormhole of some kind. 
Ooh, that could that could very well. That's be its own episode so. right there. And note there that go. I've used the wording of Frank Peretti's. I believe it was his uh, first. Yeah, no, it was his first published Cooper Kids adventure novel for young readers called "The Door in the Dragon's Throat," which has, uh, shall we say, a connection to this narrative. But you know, it's actually in continuity with the fifth Left Behind novel, Apollyon, uh, which fictionalizes this judgment. I, I, I think, yeah, I don't think you even have to squint, and it's basically in continuity. Like I said. Uh, it's one of my favorite, if you can say that, plagues in the Book of Revelation. And uh, it, there's so much fantastically horrible imagery here. I hope that's not why I like it. It's just fascinating. Well, this is as much as we can cover in one episode about possibilities for alien life from a biblical perspective. And we would love to hear from you, our listener. What are your thoughts about this? How could you make this work from a biblical point of view, send us your thoughts to podcast at lorehaven.com and mention this episode and share your thoughts. And we're going to open up the mailbag from a message we got about episode 61, which was uh, about edgier science fiction, our interview with Carrie Neitz. And this is from Robin who wrote, quote, great episode. I appreciated the mention of Chris Wally's Lamb Among the Stars series. Although I found the writing a little weak at times, overall, I love that series for its melding of science fiction and a Christian worldview. Didactic Christian fiction repels me because it doesn't seem to accept questioning and doubt as an integral part of faith. And secular science fiction fascinates me, but often leaves a bleak taste in the mind as it rejects any notion of deep mystery and existence. Sci-fi remains my favorite genre, but I especially enjoy sci-fi that considers the role of faith as we explore the universe on both the micro and macro levels. Another Christian sci-fi writer who pushes the boundaries of Christian fiction is John C. Wright. Would you discuss his work sometime? End quote. Uh, answer yes, as soon as I figure out who that is. I, as we noted in that episode, uh, so uh, apart from our guest, Carrie Neitz, there's not a whole lot of Christian-made science fiction that delves into worldview clashes like this. You know, much less the threat from technology gone awry or cloning or artificial intelligence or alien invasions. It seems most uh, Christian fans and writers right now, if they want Christian-made fiction, are mainly focused on the fantastical side. Uh, even the books labeled science fiction tend to be a little bit more on the uh, side of Star Wars and not so much uh, Star Trek, much less a, a harder science fiction like the Expanse series. I think that there is plenty of room here for exploration. And I wish that not just more Christian writers would do this, but more Christian fans would enjoy this. And I, I really appreciate the point there that the didactic stuff uh, repels me uh, here, she says, because it doesn't seem to accept questioning and doubt. But the secular stuff, it leaves that bleak taste because it's uh, it's nihilistic or nihilistic. And there's there's no hope at all. Zach, I'm actually reading the Expanse series now. And like it kind of airs mm. on that side. You know, everybody's just mm -hmm. a rather basic person just trying to survive in the hard scrabble world of the asteroids. and. There's not, you know, with the exception of the Mormons out there building their generational ship or the missionary uh, that Miller meets uh, on the way to the asteroid, uh, there's, there's not a lot of mention of faith. But I think that if you are in a world like that, religion is going to thrive and mutate and spread even faster. Whether it's humanistic religion or God-worshipping religion or pantheism or anything, you would get more religion in an environment like that, not less. Uh, and the lack of religion uh, strikes me as the least believable aspect of a series like this. So I think the Christian fans, if you like sci-fi, it would only be natural to start asking for that kind of story from any of the Christian publishers who might be tempted to give it a go. 
Yeah, I did a quick look up of John C. Wright on Amazon, and yeah, he's got quite a few science fiction series. Um, he's also got some essays, uh, transhuman and subhuman essays on science fiction and awful truth, from Barsoom to Malacandra, musing on things past and things to come, where he talks about Lewis and uh, modern sci-fi. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd I'd be interested to learn more about him. Um, and uh, to our other listeners that um, may be familiar with John C. Wright, let us know what you think about those books, and we'll we'll check out on the Lorehaven team, see if anyone's familiar. If you have any other authors uh, whose work uh, we have not yet noticed, uh, do a search at lorehaven.com and just make sure we haven't already hosted them uh, for an article or reviewed their books or list their books in the library. Uh, if you don't see that name anywhere, then yes, that is a circle we would love to explore. We want to connect all of these circles from all these great creatives and fans who are kind of doing the work maybe out there in space somewhere and uh, Mike could use a, a, a connection a point uh, between these two isolated domes. So email podcast at lorehaven.com. Uh, go to the lorehaven.com podcast page and comment on the show notes. You'll find all of our show notes there for our growing library of episodes. You can also follow us, search for Lorehaven on Facebook or Twitter, uh, or search our increasingly popular Instagram feed. Lorehaven Mag is our username there on Instagram. Next on Fantastical Truth. Oh, this is going to be a fascinating one. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. That has been the mantra of many during the coronavirus pandemic. It's also the phrasing of the regulations that the Apostle Paul dismisses in Colossians 2. Now, as we record this, even federal agencies, at least in the United States, are saying it's okay to unmask if you have been vaccinated. Why then do some folks still insist? that they must follow the moral masking regulations or else someone could be tempted to sin? And why did many Christians reject protective measures even before the vaccinations came along? This topic could be dangerous, but I think it's also necessary for Christians to explore so we can understand one another. We need to ask how our own backstories with legalism and grace and the imaginations we have but don't know about can influence our choices in what we do and what we wear, and how we try to avoid threats. Meanwhile, if you believe in aliens or don't believe in them, if you think they're out there but maybe just a fungus, or if you think they're out there and might be evil or incorrupted or have their own salvation story going on, just remember to keep all that speculation shaped by Scripture. It's great to imagine, but let's make sure we don't let our imaginations run away with us. It is the gospel that we know about. It is the gospel that Christ has revealed to us in his written word. And it's the gospel that should shape all our imaginations, even about these weird topics like aliens, as we continue to seek and find fantastical truth 